All right, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5, and this morning we're going to be dealing with verses 12 through 28, which if you've been following our study in the book of 1 Thessalonians, that will bring us to the conclusion of this particular epistle of 1 Thessalonians. I want us to consider and take for the subject this morning, earnest conclusions, earnest conclusions. When we think about a conclusion, we often think about something that is final, something that is being brought to an end. And in a, in a way, that is what the Apostle Paul is doing. This particular portion of this letter to, Thessalon- to the Thessalonians is coming to an end, but we do know that it's not the end of the Word of God. It is not the end of all that those at Thessalonica needed to hear, but it is, in fact, the ending or the conclusion of what the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to understand. Now, last week, in verse number 10, we were reminded about the reality of a resurrection. We saw in verse number 10 about Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. That is a, that is a declaration, that is a promise, that there is a resurrection for all of those that are in Christ. As Christ rose again from the grave, His children will also be resurrected. And we are grateful for that this morning. So we know that death, even death itself, for the believer, certainly, is not the end. It is not the conclusion. It is not final. It is only the beginning of eternity. However, Paul does write here concluding thoughts. Concluding thoughts regarding the life of a believer. He writes with diligence. Every word that is written in the Word of God is written with diligence. It's written with the reality that this has been penned by the Holy Spirit of God, and these words are never frivolous, they are never light. There is never a passage or a a text that is lighter or more lighthearted or less serious than any other. All of the words are heavy. They They are words of truth. So we find that it is the Spirit of God that is setting forth these concluding thoughts or these earnest conclusions. These conclusions were not arrived at by the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul was diligent, but because of the diligence of the Holy Spirit of God writing through and using the Apostle Paul, we find that Paul, as he writes in the power of the Holy Spirit, that this, these letters, and we'll see this at the conclusion of this, are in fact to be published throughout the whole world, and especially read in the church. So this morning, as we consider these earnest conclusions, there are two headings I want us to consider this morning. In verses 12 through 22, and these are very simple headings today, but I hope they'll be a help to us. In verses 12 through 22, we want to consider concluding admonitions regarding the Spirit. Concluding admonitions regarding the Spirit. And then secondly, we will pick up in verse number 23 through 28 and consider concluding exhortations regarding sanctification. So we have admonitions and exhortations that are concluding thoughts regarding our life in the Spirit and life according to our sanctification. What I want to do this morning is I want to go just verse by verse, line by line. Each one of these verses, I'm going to read the verse, and I will give us the exposition of the verse, and then I'm going to immediately give us an application to that particular verse. So let's consider this first heading, beginning in verse 12 through verse 22, these concluding admonitions regarding the Spirit. Look at verse number 12 of 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul writes these words, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. Notice Paul says, And we beseech you, brethren, he's speaking to believers, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and we are ad- admonish you. We must give consideration in our churches and in our walk with God, we must give a consideration to those who've been appointed to the ministry of the Word. Those who have been called and qualified by God to minister the Word to others. The church and its ministers and its government are not a light matter. They are 
as important as anything else we read in the scriptures. And that's what Paul is writing about. He's telling them that you must acknowledge those who are the ministers of the word of God. Acknowledge them for who they are. That they are men who have been called and qualified by God. And the Bible says this. This is not my words. But those that minister the word should be greatly esteemed. They should be held with regard. Notice he doesn't say worship. He doesn't say lords. We'll see this in just a moment. He simply says, acknowledge them for who they are. They are men who are in the service of God. And they are a function that has been called to be a part of the church. In a practical matter, Paul simply is speaking about the faithfulness or faithful pastors, ministers. He's exhorting them simple, th- simple truths to know them recognize, acknowledge, appreciate, respect for what they are, which is simply ministers of God who've been called by God. He's informing them, make yourself known to them. Talk with them. Speak with them. Let them know the state of your own soul. They labor among you. They labor. This labor is a word that is a direct reference to the labor in the Word. The most important ministry a minister of God or a pastor has is the ministry of the Word. How he takes the Word of God and he expounds the truth and he explains it, not because he's intellectually smarter than any, but because he's been called and qualified to that particular office. That's the greatest ministry he has is the ministry of the Word. That's the practicality here. There should be no neglect of the ministry of the Word. And then he uses the phrase, and they are over you in the Lord and admonishing you. This word, Lord, doesn't mean that they are your boss or they are are in charge of you. They preside over you. They are simply leaders and overseers, overseers of the church by the authority of Christ Himself. So Paul, regarding the Spirit, and we'll see where this comes together, these things must be done in the Spirit. Verse 13, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Notice Paul says, and to esteem very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. So Paul continues by saying, so then this is the reason that you ought to love them is because of the work, the labor that they do, the labor where in the ministry of the word. And as a result, that should lead to you and I being at peace with ourselves. There's harmony when these things are in the proper order. When a minister is ministering to the Word to the people and the people are receiving the Word, they're obeying the Word through the Spirit, he's preaching the Word through the Spirit, what you have happen is you have a mutual harmony. Paul is not telling them to make them idols. He's just simply saying, esteem them or hold them in appreciation for their ministry of labor in the Word of God. And as a, rego- as a result, be at peace. Regard the ministry as something that is meant for my good, not for my, not for my hindrance. They admonish. The word admonish includes thoughts like teaching and warning and reproving and exhorting. They are telling you what? Admonish you in the Lord. What the Lord would have you to do. These are admonitions that Paul is giving. Now, these admonitions would not make much sense to us if we had not received the first four chapters of this particular epistle. Look at verse number 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. Paul again now uses the word exhort, which is similar to admonition, but it's a little bit different. Exhortation is a little bit stronger than an admonition. But nonetheless, he says, we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Unruly means to be out of order. Out of order according to whom? Not out of order according to man, but out of order according to the Word of God. Paul says you've got to warn the unruly. But at the same time, in the same breath, he says you need to comfort the feeble-minded. Have a consideration for every man understanding the remedy that needs to be applied in each circumstance. Not every disease is treated with the same treatment. 
And in the church, not every situation is treated with the same treatment. That's the idea here. He, he is saying, I beg you, according to the responsibility we've been given in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have towards one another and to the testament of the gospel, these things ought to be the case. Warn people, advise them when they're out of order. Unruly conduct, unruly attitude should not be permitted to continue without warning and admonition. But then he says, encourage or comfort the feeble-minded. That is the same as encouraging the weak. It is uh, comfort those who are broken. Comfort those who are afflicted. Comfort those who need consolation, not a rebuke. Sometimes we need to be consoled, not rebuked. Different different situations call for different circumstances how we handle it. Be patient. Be patient. Support the weak. Be patient towards all men. Even the unruly we need to be patient towards. Remember our own afflictions. Remember our own ability to stumble. Galatians 6.1 Be patient. Let's remember, folks, it's only by God's grace that any of us walk in the light. Only God's grace allows us to walk in the light. Only the presence of the Holy Spirit can allow us to obey these admonitions. If you gave these admonitions to a mere unsaved man, he cannot walk in these truths. It is by the Spirit that man obeys the Word of God. Verse 15, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. I wrote in the margin of my Bible, love should never injure. Love should never injure. In other words, we ought not to be able to hinder love by injuring one another. Evil for evil is not the way of God. Getting even, retaliating, seeking revenge is not for the believer. Remember, he's talking to churches. He's dealing with churches and how they are to function together. Great principles that are given here. And then verses 16, 17, and 18, we can almost take as a as a a, a collection of thoughts, but we're going to break them down first of all. Notice in verse 16, simply he says, rejoice evermore. Rejoice evermore. What does it mean to rejoice? To rejoice is a mind that is quiet and satisfied and nourished regarding the will of God. I rejoice today, not because my circumstances are perfect, not because I don't have any issues, but because everything that's happening is according to the will of God. That's why I can rejoice today. Even the death of Christ on the cross was according to the will of God. His burial, His resurrection three days later was exactly the way that it was prophesied by God that it would happen. We rejoice today not because our lives are perfect. We rejoice today because God's will is being done. We can be quieted about this because we can rejoice that God has all under control. Rejoice evermore. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. The more we rejoice, the more we pray. If you have a prayer problem today, it's because you don't rejoice. They are connected thoughts. How I pray is directly related to whether I'm rejoicing in the things of God. If my prayer life suffers, it's because I'm not rejoicing as I should. And yet we have all to rejoice in. When the heart is in a condition of satisfaction, when the heart is in a condition of rejoicing, when we are full of the Lord, we will want to draw near to God in prayer. We will want to react to God. We will want to immediately be in His presence and stay in His presence. That is the reality of rejoicing and praying. That's why these two particular thoughts are together. And in verse 18, he says, "...in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you." In how many things? In everything, give thanks. Everything, give thanks. Why? For this is the will of God concerning you. Many people ask the question, what's the will of God for my life? Here's one of them. Give thanks. Thanks is an acceptable thing to God. 
God never rejects our thanksgiving. If we're thankful today for the cross, we're thankful for the resurrection, because of who God is and because of Christ, that rejoicing, that thanksgiving is never, ever, ever rejected. As we connect these thoughts, rejoice, pray, give thanks. That is the will of God. It is the will of God that we're always rejoicing. We're always praying. We're praying and giving thanks for what we are, what we have, where we are. Everything that's happening in life is according to the will of God. And yes, friends, even what we're going through now is according to the will of God. It is not taking God by surprise. This is not the enemy getting victory or getting a foothold. This is according to the will of God. And man may say, how can it be the will of God that churches can't gather together? How can it be the will of God? Because God uses all things for His glory. He always has and He always will. We ought to be thankful even during this time. We ought to still be rejoicing. We ought to still be giving thanks. We ought to still be praying. We are to rejoice in our adversity. We are to rejoice in our prosperity. We learn how to be abound and we learn how to be abased. Pray always. Be, be grateful. Don't be ungrateful. If we're ungrateful, it's because we have set our value on something other than the righteousness of Christ. Ungratefulness today is the result of setting your values on something other than the righteousness of Christ. And friends, the only thing of value today is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The hope of eternal life. There is nothing, nothing in this world that should be overvalued more than the gift of God's grace shown to us through the giving of Jesus Christ. How can you and I murmur when we are in Jesus Christ? Amen. You say, but my life is upside down. Everyone's life is upside down right now. But do you know without Christ, even without this, your life was upside down. Without Christ, this world is hopeless. Without Christ, there is nothing to rejoice in. Without Christ, there is nothing to give thanks for. It is Christ that Paul is driving these believers. That's why he says in everything, for this is the will of God. And notice in Christ Jesus concerning you. If you take in Christ Jesus out of that verse, that verse loses its meaning. Because the only reason I can do these things is because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul is admonishing regarding the Spirit of God. He's talking to believers who have the Spirit of God. Without the Spirit... These things are impossible. Verse 19. Quench not the Spirit. Quench not the Spirit. Paul is not talking about stopping the Holy Spirit of God's work. You and I, even the most wicked Satan himself, cannot stop the effectual work of the Holy Spirit of God ever. The Holy Spirit has never lost a battle to Satan. The Holy Spirit has never lost a soul to the devil. There has never been a lost battle of the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about quenching or stopping the work of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about do not quench the spark of the Spirit that's in you. Do not fail to, or don't fail to nourish yourself by the Word of God. Understand, study, be in the true doctrine. Paul doesn't mean quenching the Spirit Himself. He does what He will. He's referring to the fruits of the Spirit. The graces of the Spirit, such as faith, love, joy, peace. When Paul says quench not the Spirit, he's saying quench not the fruits of the Spirit that are in you. I can't quench the Holy Spirit Himself, but I can in fact quench the gifts and the fruits. I neglect them. I'm not putting them to use for the glory of God. That's what he's talking about. Do not do that. To quench the Spirit, Paul here is talking about subduing those precious gifts that He's given you. Verse 20. 
despise not prophesyings. Prophesyings are the explaining, the interpretation, and the preaching of the Word of God. Paul tells the church here, do not despise them, do not make light of it, do not be indifferent to the message of those who preach, expound, interpret the Word. This section began by Paul talking about the ministers of the Word among them. Remember what he said, know them, esteem them, be at peace among them. Exhort them, warn them, comfort them. He says all of these things ought to lead us to not despise the preaching of the Word. There are people today who despise the preaching of the Word of God. There are churches today who have stopped preaching the Word and have simply started to give just a feel-good message about how to get along in life. They've stopped preaching. Yet it is the Word of God that changes people. It's the Word of God being preached that the Holy Spirit uses to save a soul. If a man or a woman gets saved, it's because the Holy Spirit of God is doing the work. But it's also possible... It's possible for a minister of God to give a worthless, useless sermon. If that sermon is based upon his own intellect, that sermon is based upon his own soapbox, if you will, it is not going to be the preaching of the Word. We need to prove everything by Scripture. In other words, when you hear the Word of God being preached, prove it. Study for yourself. Make sure what the preacher said is good, is true. Some people are critical of preaching before they ever even study it for themselves. They just assume that can't be right. Yet, we are to weigh everything. 1 John 4 talks about trying the spirits to be sure that they're of God. Again, a lot of principles in these earnest conclusions, these admonitions. Verse 22, or verse 21, Prove all things, hold fast. That which is good. This goes together with that verse previous. Prove all things. Prove the things that are of God. Prove the things that are right. The Word of God can be proven. Those who say, I don't believe the Word of God is true. I don't believe in the resurrection. I don't believe that there was a death of Christ. I don't believe those things. If you study the Word of God, it will be proven to you that it is indeed fact. It is truth. And then Paul seems to change gears, but I would suggest to you that he doesn't. This is probably the most quoted verse in 1 Thessalonians 5. And I would also say maybe even the most misinterpreted. He says, abstain from all appearance of evil. Now, abstain, we know, is to refrain. Appearance is the view of. But notice the conclusion here. Remember, we're talking about in 1 Thessalonians 5 about the coming of Christ. Remember context. Context always matters. Paul's giving these earnest conclusions because the coming of Christ is so near. Today, we are nearer to His second coming each and every day. It's closer and closer and closer. But remember, as we've learned, it is not for us to know the seasons. It's not for us to know the time. We don't need to know the time of His coming. But we are to live as if His coming is, in fact, on the horizon. So as we think about this, think about everything Paul's been teaching. Paul's been teaching that while we wait for the coming of Christ, we are to give ourselves over to a pureness of mind, a pureness of our will, and a pureness of what we do, our body. And we only can do that through the strength of God's grace through the Spirit. It is impossible for me to abstain from all appearance of evil without the Holy Spirit of God. Oftentimes we hear it preached, well, just stop doing that. It is the Spirit of God that allows us. But remember the context. Paul is talking about doctrine. He's talking about the second coming. Many people just simply interpret this verse as suggesting that we as believers are to avoid any conduct, behavior, or actions that may not be wrong, but we don't want to give the appearance to somebody else. That's not exactly what this verse means. What he's talking about, that's good counsel, by the way. 
But what Paul's specifically talking about here is he's not speaking about just the appearance of wrongdoing in our life. He's talking about the doctrinal evil that is going to try to creep in. Don't allow the appearance of any doctrinal evil that goes against what we've heard. Friends, so many verses are just plucked out of their context. And again, abstain from all appearance of evil is a good thing. I should not be an an intentional stumbling block to somebody else. I should not intentionally sin. But understand something, Paul means something much deeper than just simply giving the appearance of something that's not wrong, but somebody else is offended by it. That's not the context. The context is doctrinal evil. In other words... In the verses previous, despise not prophesying, the expounding of the word, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Taken in its context, he's talking about the preaching and the teaching and the interpretation of Scripture, that when it's tried by the word, it's proven to be true. However, here's another warning. There are times when the word of God is being preached And there's a suspicion that rises up in us. The Holy Spirit begins to work in us and there's something that's not right. Remember, doctrinal evil is not always blatant in your face. It's subtle. That's the appearance of evil he's talking about. I may hear a man stand up before the congregation and he may say, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter, number, or 5, chapter 5, verse 22, and he may be giving the Scripture, but there's something in our spirit that just isn't right. There are false doctrines that are taught out of the very same book in which we are reading this morning. Just because a man opens a Bible doesn't mean that he's doctrinally pure. That's what Paul is telling them. Understand, abstain from giving the appearance of any doctrinal evil. That's the interpretation of the verse. Again, great advice that we don't do anything in the world that may be right for us to do just to cause someone else to stumble, but it's much deeper than that. It's doctrinal evil. You see, the truth of God is clear. Here's here's the truth about God's Word. God's Word will always give glory to the writer which is God, not the speaker. If I leave a message giving glory to the speaker, the preacher, then I have not heard the word properly. The glory is to go to God, not the preacher. That's why it doesn't matter if the preacher is great in his presentation. It doesn't matter if he's eloquent. The Apostle Paul was not an eloquent man. The Apostle Paul, if he was to come into this place today where we are right now, or to come where you're sitting right now, you would not be impressed with his appearance, and you would not be impressed with even his eloquence. Because that's not where the power is. The power is in the Spirit of God. That's why Paul's admonishing and exhorting in the Spirit as believers. The truth of God always gives glory to God. Now verse 23 through 28, let's consider these final exhortations, and these also go very quickly. Verse 23, he says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless, here it is, unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he now brings us back to the context. I'm admonishing you and exhorting you in all these things because of the truth that Jesus Christ is coming again. Where is Jesus Christ coming from? He's coming from the right hand of the Father. How did he get at the right hand of the Father? Because he came to this earth, took on a robe of human flesh, never ceased to be God, lived a perfect life, fulfilled the law, went to a cross willfully and voluntarily, paid for the sin debt of his people, died on that cross, shed his blood, was buried... Three days later, he burst forth from the grave in the resurrection, which people are celebrating today. But understand something. That resurrection, as Jesus was witnessed by numbers of people, multitudes of people, he did not stay here. He ascended back to the right hand of the Father where he is waiting for that appointed moment to return. Paul continually through this letter, 1 Thessalonians, has reminded them through all five chapters, this is what you are to be looking for. You're not looking for signs. 
You're looking for Christ. You're not looking for calendars. You're looking for Christ. You're not looking for things we can speculate about. You're looking for Christ. Why would I look for a Christ unless I believed in a resurrection? I wouldn't. I can't look for the coming of Christ if I don't believe that Christ rose from the grave. That's why I said already, and even as we open today, just talking about a resurrection doesn't mean that you're a converted man or a woman. There's so much more to what's happening here. Paul is talking to brethren. He's talking to believers who are settled in these matters. He's not telling them to believe the resurrection. He's telling them, you're looking for the second coming because you already believe the resurrection. You know Christ went to the cross. You know He bled and died. Yet He gives them these final exhortations. And He says in verse 23 that the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. The word sanctify, it's, it's the word to separate from the world. Makes you holy unto Himself through His Spirit. Listen, friends, the only true peace in this world is the Spirit of God. The only way I can be at peace right now is because of the Spirit of God. The only reason we're not panicking as believers today is because of the Spirit of God. We have no reason to panic. We have no reason to be hopeless. We have no reason to be despondent because we are in Christ and we know that one day He is coming again. And while we're waiting for His coming, we are being sanctified. We are being conformed more and more into the image. Paul is praying that they would be more sanctified even more perfectly. Right now, we are only a part of what we're going to be. You take the holiest man or woman that you know, and that is not perfection. That's not perfection. That is not perfect sanctification yet. Yet there is coming a day when we will be without sin. We will see Christ as He is. And we are pressing towards the mark, as the Apostle Paul wrote in the letter to the Philippians. We are pressing towards complete holiness. Had God not carried out the good work of Jesus Christ, finishing the work of redemption, we would not have the promise that he mentions here at the end of this verse that, be, that, our, that our soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word blameless, folks, means everything. Because if I am not blameless before God, then I am still in my sins and I am dead in my trespasses and sins and I have no hope for eternity. I am a dead man walking. But if I'm in Christ, I am being sanctified. Paul is praying that they would be sanctified more perfectly and continue to be carried on and carried on until that day when Jesus Christ comes and sets all things right. As I'm reading this text this morning and even early this morning, I, of course, I'm not questioning the order of Scripture. It's exactly where it needs to be. But verse 24 to me seems out of place, but it's not. He says, faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Now you say, why does that seem out of place? Because if I'm writing Scripture, which I'm not, I put this in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1, verse 1. It's the very first words that I write. And you say, that seems very peculiar. That seems very odd. Why in the world would you do that? Because of the importance of what Paul is saying. Faithful is he that calleth you. Notice it doesn't say faithful or you. It says faithful is he that calleth you. Notice the order who also will do it. He who calls you, who is faithful, will perform and will complete everything He said He will do. What does this mean for us? Well, the word faithful there. Faithful, this is the good and the power of God. That is our greatest source of encouragement and strength against every difficulty, every trial, and every struggle. I can be hopeful in a hopeless situation because He's faithful. I can be hopeful even in this plague because He's faithful. 
He's faithful to what? To the coming of Jesus Christ. That coming is as certain as we are seated wherever we are today. That is certain. He is faithful. Faithful is. To be faithful means that He's the always the only one. He's the only one who can take that title. You and I cannot call ourselves faithful. If you're one of those Christians that says, I'm faithful, you lie. You are not faithful. I am not faithful. I struggle. I doubt. I fear. There are some days that are worse than others. There are some days where we just simply seem like, how in the world can I be a child of God? And yet, faithful is He who calleth me. Faithful is He who calleth you. He declares the truth. Therefore, the salvation of His own is safe and sure and is never to be wondered and questioned. He's faithful to do what? What's the it? To make you perfect. It goes right along with verse 23. To make you perfect, blameless. Perfect and blameless means I can stand before a holy, righteous God. Why? Because God the Father, when He sees me, doesn't see me, doesn't see my sin. He sees the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ in me. As soon as we grab hold of the reality of what that means, that you and I are not a child of God because of any good thing we think we have done. It's not your prayer that saved you. It's not your baptism that saved you. It's not even your church attendance that's having any part. None of those things have any part of your salvation. It is only by the perfect choice and purpose of God that He chose you out, He saved you, and He has put the righteousness of Christ in you. Men and women that think I'm going to stand one day and I'm going to show God the Father all the good things I've done. The Old Testament Isaiah prophet said, we, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. The only quote-unquote credit we receive is what is credited to Christ. That's it. You and I don't have the promise of a resurrection because of anything that we did. You and I don't have the rights to the throne of God because of anything that we did. We only have rights to those things because of what Jesus Christ has done. It has been usually every year about this time, whenever Resurrection Sunday falls, we're typically in a book of the Bible that is dealing with the cross before the resurrection. I don't think that's by coincidence at all. Today, yes, Paul's writing about after these things took place. In our worship service this morning at 11.30, we're going to be dealing with Jesus as He's standing before Pilate, even before He ever gets to the cross. Yet, everything that Jesus says, He's talking about the resurrection. And we understand here that this faithful, Paul, as he's praying for these believers, he's praying that the Lord Himself would, in a manner of sanctification that only He can do, would sanctify them in spirit, in soul, and in body. If it was not through the Holy Spirit of God, our affections would never be able to be regulated. You and I would not be able to control even the very depravity of ourselves without the Spirit of God. That's why Paul is not giving these admonitions this morning to unbelievers. He's giving these admonitions in 1 Thessalonians 5 to believers, to brethren who have the Spirit. These things are impossible without the Spirit of God. None of that which, none of whom Christ has called to himself will perish. None. It has been said that it is by this assurance, this assurance of God's grace, God's faithfulness is our security. 
God being faithful is my hope. God's faithfulness is, what our, is, 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 is where our calling comes from. We have been called by a faithful God to live as a demonstration of His marvelous grace. He didn't save us and then say, I'm going to leave the work in your hands. He says, no, I'm going to call you unto myself. I'm going to give you the Spirit and the Spirit is going to do the work through you. It's an amazing thing that how often we give credit to what man has done instead of giving glory to what the Holy Spirit's done through us. The Apostle Paul, I do not believe, and I'm speculating on this particular aspect, but I believe if you read the letters of the Apostle Paul, he would not have ever allowed you to commend him for his goodness, for his abilities, for the wonderful letters he wrote. He would say it's all to the glory of God. All of it. I'm afraid that we have gotten into a Christian society that takes so much credit for what we are doing for God to make God better, to make God more palatable, to make God more receivable. And he needs none of it because he's faithful. You see, God's word is going to go forth. People are going to be saved and converted even if we fail to do what we're supposed to do. Now, we should never be found of us. We, you should have a desire today to be as faithful as you can possibly be, but understand that only one who is truly faithful is God himself. Notice how Paul ends this letter. Verse 25, brethren, pray for us. Now again, when we get to the end of chapters, end of books, end of portions of Scripture, we have a tendency to move quickly. It's the anticipation of a conclusion. But notice Paul's words. Brethren, pray for us. Paul specifically asked for these brethren, the Thessalonians, to pray for him. Now, we might look at this and we might say, well, this is just kind of the wrap-up. No, what you see here in these final verses is some of the most authoritative exhortations that Paul gives. You say they don't seem powerful. Yet, notice what he says. Pray for us. Let every believer, especially the ministers of God we've spoken about in verses 12 through the end of this chapter, especially them, be the ob may we be the objects of their prayers. They were asking for God's people to pray for them. He says in verse 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. This simply means to demonstrate brotherly love towards one another. In their society, that's the way you did greet one another. You you were to greet one another with a holy kiss. But this is a demonstration of brotherly love. Paul says, listen, pray and demonstrate brotherly love. And then these, these verses, if you, if you just run through them, you'll miss it. I charge you. I charge you. This is, this is a stronger word than I beg you. This is, this is Paul saying, I'm commanding you by the authority of God to do the next thing I'm getting ready to tell you. And again, if you run through this real quickly, you think, I've, we've already read the meaty stuff. We've already read the most important stuff. But this is the practical application and the charge that Paul gives. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle, 1 Thessalonians, <laughs> be read unto all the holy brethren. We are commanded by the Apostle Paul to read 1 Thessalonians. Now, not every letter ends this way. But think about the significance here. Read this epistle unto all the holy brethren. You know what he's saying? Read this epistle in the church. Read it. Study it. This epistle was to be read by all the brethren, not just the ministers. 
That's why we firmly believe, we firmly believe as, as Baptist people, as believers of the Bible, that it's not just the ministers that should be reading the Bible, but every single believer ought to be reading the Bible for themselves, studying the Bible for themselves. It's not an option, it's your responsibility. You should not have to be persuaded to read the Word of God. Paul says, I'm not telling you, hey, if you need a quick devotional thought today, read the epistle. He said, no, I command you, I charge you by the authority of God, read it. Again, wow, we've just come out of doctrine like sanctification and doctrine like faithful is he that calleth you. And yet he says, I charge you, read this. The scripture should be read publicly. It's a benefit just to read the Scriptures. In our normal gatherings, we read a lot of Scripture. We read whole chapters. We read full passages. We read those because we understand that the benefit is there. The benefit that God speaks through His Word. And then notice the Apostle Paul finishes this letter, or concludes this letter as he finishes so many of them. He finishes the epistle nearly the same way in which he began. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. The opening words of this epistle, Paul says, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He ends the epistle with grace. He began the epistle with grace. Paul concludes the entire epistle by reminding us of the promise of God's faithfulness and the faithfulness to His own grace. Today, we think about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and we're reminded that the resurrection is a perfect demonstration of God's goodness. And today, if you're searching for something more to make you happy, that will make you content, that goes beyond the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are going to come up empty. There is no greater place of happiness and contentment and satisfaction than to know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is this perfect, perfect fountain of grace. He supplies all of our needs. He supplies all of our wants. When we understand who the Apostle Paul was, we see more and more how God Himself does mighty things through very weak instruments. Not so the instrument gets the glory, but so God gets the glory. The epistle of this first epistle of Thessalonians is a demonstration of the glory of God's grace. You and I are just simply weak instruments. We're weak vessels that have been allowed the privilege of displaying His marvelous glory. Amen. Today we celebrate because we have knowledge. But we have more than knowledge. We have an understanding. An understanding of why Jesus Christ came, why Jesus Christ had to die, and why the resurrection matters. But not everybody understands that. There are people in your family who have no idea why this matters. They're even using the terminology and they don't know why it matters. And yet, Christ Himself, through God the Father, through that eternal, before time began, that covenant of grace, it was determined before the very foundation of the world that Jesus Christ would be that sacrifice. Christ was not a reaction to man's sin. He was the declared remedy before sinner, before sinner was ever born. And when we consider that and we think about that, we serve a God that is not reactionary. We serve a God who's not waiting to see what man will do to put a plan, his sovereign plan in place. No, we see God's sovereign plan taking place in our lives right now. Even in the midst of a plague, God's sovereignty 
His spirit is not being hindered. God is not losing. The empty tomb is a declaration of victory. But victory, the victory was actually secured on the cross. When Christ uttered the words, it is finished. That's when redemption was secured. Resurrection is the evidence and the proof that Jesus Christ was God. And exactly who he said he was. That's what the resurrection is about. But it's tied directly, even as we bring 1 Thessalonians to a conclusion, it's tied directly to those thoughts. As we close our study this morning, we're going to play through the hymn, or the hymn will be played through in our Hymns of Grace songbook. I realize we're not together, we're not singing together, and we are missing that aspect of it. But she's playing through page 309 of our Hymns of Grace. It's an older hymn that is entitled, Jesus Christ is Risen Today. As she plays through right wherever you are, there in your homes, I just want you to think about and meditate upon what we've heard this morning. And certainly, if you have a need to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, I would encourage you, today is that day. If you have a Hymns of Grace songbook where you are, sing right where you are. Or just read the words, follow along, and we'll bring this time to a close. And then we'll invite you to come back with us. We'll be live again at 1130 for our worship service, where we'll be dealing with the question, what is truth? from John chapter 18. So she will play through this closing hymn, Jesus Christ is Risen Today, page 309.